We're going to look at the life of David. As of now, the plan is to look at the highlights of his life, which are going to take us all the way uh, to Christmas Eve. Uh, uh, The 24th will be the last Sunday we will be in the series, but we'll see if that's God's plan as well. That's my plan right now, and we'll see what he does. Uh, David, next to Jesus, may be the most important person in the Bible. Perhaps that's why he has the longest narrative in ancient literature that presents a single human's life. There is more biographical information penned about this man in Scripture than any other character in the Bible except for Jesus. He's a fascinating individual, right? I mean, he's a warrior, he's a poet, he's a king, he's a shepherd, he's a man after God's own heart, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a leader, he's a musician, and ultimately, I hope what we'll see in this series, he's a pointer. He's a pointer to our hope. To say the least, this man's life story is not boring. It is very interesting, and I'm excited to see what God will teach us as we go through this series together. We're going to start our series this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. A little background into the context of our passage. Saul was chosen to be the first king over Israel, over God's people. And this king, Saul, was chosen by the people. And what it said is they chose him because they wanted a king that looked just like the other nations. They wanted a king that looked just like the other kings, just like the other nations. So they looked at Saul and they deemed him worthy to be their king. But he tragically rejects God's word and God himself. Therefore, God ends up rejecting him and removing Saul from his place as king. And he redirects the throne to somebody else. He redirects it now to his choosing, which is David. And the last verse of uh, 1 Samuel 15 says that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel, which leads us to our text, where Samuel, God's prophet, is grieving over this loss, the loss of the king of the people of Israel, and he's wondering, what's going to happen now? Now that the king is being removed, now the king has rejected God, what's going to happen to God's people is what Samuel's wondering. Does God's rejection of the king mean that he's going to reject the people as well because they were the one who chose him? Samuel's concerned about what will happen to Israel now that God's rejected their king, and this is where our text now begins. This is where we enter into uh, the text we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you can or able, please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer and you with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on 
Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has he, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can take your seat. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak powerfully through your word. That you would use this passage uh, to ignite our hearts. That your spirit would move and work and transform us according to this passage, according to your message that you have for us this morning. We pray that you would uh, give us faith to believe. That you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you clearer as we understand your word better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the hinge and the heart of our passage is found at the, at the middle, in verse 7. The hinge and the heart of the passage is verse 7. Look at what it says. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Here it is. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And right away, one main point of this passage that we are to take away is that this verse describes and reveals to us how we, all of humanity, see, interpret, and understand the world. It shows us how we go about deciding what really matters in this world, how we determine what we should pursue, what's worth our time to seek after and go after. And it says that the way that we do that is we look at appearances. We look at the outward appearance. We trust, follow, and pursue what it is that we can see or perceive with our eyes. And Samuel, in our text, almost serves as a case study for this reality. And the first half, the first point of this is him basically serving as a case study in the first half of our text for this first point. See, he is overcome with grief because Saul was rejected by God as king. And Samuel's thinking to himself, if this man is not worthy of royalty, then who is? If this man can't make it, then who can? The way Saul is described in 1 Samuel 9 when he's chosen as king is that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is the realm of how they chose their king, by what he appeared. According to what Samuel can see, because of Saul's kingly-like stature, is that there's no hope for Israel outside of this king, Saul. 
God quickly, though, answers and calms his concerns in verse 1 when he tells Samuel, I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. However, Samuel, although he's told that God has a plan, he's told that God has chosen a king, even he's told what uh, family he's going to come from, he is not told which son. He's not told the details of this plan. Therefore, when Samuel sees Jesse's first son, Eliab, and his stature, he is certain this is the one. This has to be the king because of what he sees in this first son. And he's wrong. (laughs) He's wrong again. Samuel couldn't see God's plan after Saul because Samuel, as our case study, as a man, looks on the outward appearance to judge and assess who's worthy. Even after Samuel learns of God's plan, he can't see God's chosen king and he can't see who it isn't. Because Samuel looks only on the outward appearance. And here's the point. Samuel and verse 7 are a diagnostic for us. A diagnostic on how we see and try to determine ultimate reality, ultimate value, how we assess where ultimate reality and ultimate value is found. Therefore, what it is teaching is that we make decisions based on, and we are obsessed with things like beauty, Stature, even our text, birth order, success, awards, titles, achievements, good deeds, to name a few. Right? I mean, we even have a saying that's very well known in our culture that exposes this reality in us. If you are describing somebody that that somebody else hasn't met, and one of the first things you say is, well, they have a good personality, what are you really saying? They're ugly, right? You're saying they're ugly. They're not much to look at, right? I mean, that's, that's, you're saying they don't have a good personality that should be what we're prioritizing when we're looking to connect with people. And yet, uh, we are so appearance-oriented that a person, saying someone has a good a personality is kind of a nice way to describe someone negatively, Do you see how intrinsic this approach is to us? That we can say something like that, and everyone here knows what I mean. And everyone here knows what I'm not saying, right? A couple things to note here. One, beauty, success, appearance, good deeds, awards are good things. This passage is not saying they are bad things. They are good things. They are fine things in and of themselves. But... They do not last, and they are not what life is all about. They do not determine ultimate reality, ultimate value. They do not show that. Verse 12 says that God's chosen king, David, has beautiful eyes and is handsome. He's not against beauty. He's not against appearances. It's not a negative in and of itself. Obviously, God's not against these things because he's the author. He's the creator of them. But it's not what he's after. It's not what he wants in us. It's not what impresses him. The second thing to note is that this text is not saying for us, as is often taught, to stop looking at appearances. Stop caring about appearances and start to look into people's hearts. Because we can't do that. That's what this text is showing us. We can't look into people's hearts. God does see differently than we do. 
So often the way this text gets preached or taught is stop looking at the surface. Stop looking at appearances. Look deeper. Go after the good personality person. Right? That's how this is presented. But that's not what this is teaching. It's not saying that. It's diagnosing us and saying, it's revealing that this is how we judge people. It's how we understand the world. And the way that we see, judge, and understand the world is limited. Is limited because of how we see. But how we understand is by what we can observe. So this is what we do. This is what we are limited to is the point. So the danger lies not in that that's how we do it or what we do, but the danger is when we trust, believe, and live life as if that's all there is, as if that's everything. Proverbs, as we saw earlier, says the danger is when we lean on our own understanding, thinking we see clearly, we see everything, instead of trusting completely and fully in the Lord. Which brings us to our next point of verse 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. We dissected how we see. Now it shows us how God sees. And it's not like us. Because the Lord, we're told, looks on the heart. In other words, what this is telling us is that God is the only one who sees ultimate reality. God's the only one who can see through the appearance to see through to what lasts, and he has no limit in his sight. He is the one who sees what really matters because he sees our hearts. He sees what is behind all of our doing, behind physical appearances, behind our polish, our sleekness, our brilliance, success, money, talents. He sees through it all, and he sees us for who we are, and he sees those things for what they are. He knows every thought you have every intention of your heart, every desire, every motivation behind why you do what you do. He sees it all. He sees who you really are and who I really am. He knows you to the core. God cannot be fooled or satisfied by your external behaviors or your achievements or the way you can dress yourself up, spiritually speaking. He sees and looks upon the real you. The you that last. So the question is, why do we still pretend with him as if he can't see that? Why do we try and fool him? Why do we try to cover up and hide like Adam and Eve as if fig leaves and bushes could fool God? I think it's because we all have this deep-seated fear that constantly whispers, am I acceptable? Am I lovable? Am I enough? This whisper, this fear, I think is also the root of all of our doing. The root of our anxiety, our busyness, our need to be productive. The root of why we are, have a standoff nature towards people we don't know. Why we have a distrust towards people that are in our life. I think it's the root of people, of our people-pleasing tendencies. That we are willing to deny hurts and deny things because we don't want conflict, because we don't want to mess anything up. We just want them to like us and everyone to be peaceable. I think this is at the root of those things, our insecurities. But the truth is that we are terrified to face what the Bible makes really clear. It has an answer to those questions, are you lovable, are you enough? The Bible says no. It says you're not. You're not lovable. You're not enough. 
The things that you're insecure about, uh, the Bible says, are actually true. This is what verse 10 dreadfully affirms with Jesse's seven sons getting rejected. You see, in the ancient world, the number seven is a perfect and complete number. So what this verse is telling us is that the Lord's sight sees through it all. And what he sees in our hearts leads to total, complete, and perfect rejection of our hearts, of who we are. He sees all the way to our hearts and to our core. And we are unable to stand before him on our own, on our own merits, on our own strength. Our natural state before God, in other words, what verse 10 in this passage is showing, is rejection and unworthiness. No amount of beauty, stature, birth order, or achievements can change this. When we stand before God, before the Lord's sight on our own, we stand rejected. And you're thinking, I thought Redeemer is about good news. Come on, easy, about grace and good news. Well, the truth is, is, is that we have to hear this. Stick with me because we have to hear and understand and grasp this part of the news. Because it's preparing our hearts for the good news. But we have to understand that part of what this is teaching us and these seven sons being rejected is that that's us. That's our hearts before God. And we can do nothing about it because he sees through everything we try. Everything we try to dress up. So the problem is that our sight is not like the Lord's. We do not see as he sees, which fools us to think that there is something we can do to change our standing before God. But the problem shows us not just that we don't see as he does, because the real problem behind that is what he sees in our hearts causes us to be completely and totally rejected before him. When you come to terms with that, when you understand and come to terms with that, when you are able to clearly see that, then, and only then, will you be driven to start to look outside your help, yourself, outside yourself for hope. What this text is showing is that what we need after seeing that we are not enough is that we need to look upon and see the forgotten son, as Tim Keller would call him, the forgotten son. What do we make of this forgotten son in our text? What do we do with David in our passage? The Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says that he is a kind of male Cinderella in this story. Uh, left to do his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. See, the danger of people like David and stories like this, uh, in the, when you take them out of their context, is to think that there's something different about David, that there's something intrinsically different about him, to think that he is intrinsically good in some way and that his brothers are not, which is why he is chosen as the king over them. That's the danger. That's the temptation. But don't be fooled by your first glance. Don't be fooled by the appearances of what things look like when you first look at them. Because we will see very clearly in weeks to come, David is just like his brothers, and even worse, he is a character that's very close to Saul's, who just got rejected. So if David isn't good, if, it, if he isn't any different from his brothers, then what is it about him? that causes God to choose him and not reject him? Why doesn't God reject David the way he rejects his brothers before? 
The truth is, in our text, there's only one thing different about him that makes all the difference in the world. You know what it is? Grace. It's grace. That's it. In other words, there's nothing different about him other than the grace of God in his life. God has chosen David not because of David's heart towards God, but because of God's gracious heart towards David. How do you know this from the passage we're in? How do you know that to be true? How do you know I'm not just making this up because we are a grace-oriented church? Uh, In the last verse, verse 13, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord, it said, rushed upon, literally means flooded David from that day forward. And did you notice something? That his name is not given or mentioned until this verse. David's name is never given to us in this passage until verse 13. The entire passage up to this time, he is not named. He is called king, future king, chosen. He's called the youngest, but it is not until this last verse that we get his name, David. Do you see what's happening, what the author is telling us? What God is telling us in this passage, the reversal that happens because of the grace of God that comes through the Spirit of the Lord, the once forgotten, rejected son of his father. Not only gets named, but is remembered forever because of grace, not because of his heart. Because of grace that rushes upon him, that floods him and does not leave him from that day. It's not because of his heart towards God, but because of God's gracious heart towards him through the Spirit. The problem presented in our text is that God sees our hearts. And therefore, on our own merit, on our own strength, we stand rejected before God. But just like David, our only hope is that we would be flooded by the Holy Spirit rushing upon us because of his gracious heart towards us, despite our hearts. What you do, how you look, what you achieve are fine and well, but they don't last. They're not ultimate reality. That's not where our hope lies. That's not what genuinely, lastingly matters. Because they can never change, fix, or fool or hide what God sees in our hearts. What lasts and what comes into the Lord's sight is do you have his spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced the grace of God rushing upon you, not because of your good heart, but despite it? Rushing upon you because of his grace alone. The passage is meant to have us look upon David In this text, the forgotten son, in order to show us where our need and our hope lies, is in the grace of God alone. But the life of David is pointing us to another son, right? It's pointing us to Jesus. This is the only son whose heart can stand before God the Father on its own. The only heart that he sees through, and when he does, we're told, he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased because what I see in his heart. And that truth makes what happens on the cross so unimaginable. Because it's there that the son of God is not just forgotten, but forsaken. 
the only acceptable, lovely, and good heart gets rejected completely and totally. His cries to be seen by his father on the cross are met with only wrath and condemnation of his back. Why? Why is that the case? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus suffer that? It's so that unacceptable, unlovable, and rejected hearts like you and me will never know what that's like. Jesus became the forgotten son, forsaken on the cross, so that you and I will never be forgotten. We will never be forsaken. We will be remembered and embraced by his grace forever, from this day forward, forever. The Lord sees not as man sees. So do not think, do not look at your circumstances, do not look upon your hardships, do not look upon your achievements and successes for your hope. Look upon the forgotten and forsaken son who, although he was acceptable, became rejected completely and totally for you. Only then will you be able to see what is true, what is lasting, what matters, which is that you have and will always have the loving, gracious embrace of your Father because Jesus became the forgotten and forsaken Son for you. Amen.